Welcome to this podcast from Wilkesboro Baptist Church, where we are on a mission to lead our neighbors and the nations to follow Jesus. If you will, turn with me in your copy of Scripture to Daniel chapter 2. This is one of my favorite chapters in all of the Bible. It's a long chapter. So we're not going to preach this word by word or verse by verse intentionally. Otherwise, we'd be here till August. And I have already been reminded that sometimes I get a little long in my sermons. Usually that's not too much of a problem for you in the congregation. Our nursery workers may not feel the exact same way. The other week we had 22 children, one and under, in our nursery. Yeah. So a couple things that that means. One is I need to be done about 12 or 12.05. Okay? So y'all pray for me about that. So you're going to have to listen fast. Okay? The other thing is that may mean some of you need to get a background check and go to Miss Danielle or go to Miss Danielle and say, I'd like to help in the nursery. I'd love to help hold babies. I'd love to help those children know what it means that God loves them, and I'll get a background check, and I will serve and support that wonderful ministry in the life of our church. I don't think Miss Danielle asked for that plug. I was just letting you know why I'm going to try to talk fast today and work through the book of Daniel chapter 2. We're in a sermon series entitled Worship and Worldview, the Intersection of Church and Culture. Daniel 2 is all about the kingdom of God in the world in contrast to the kingdoms of the world. And what do kingdoms have to do with our worldview and our worship and how we interact with the culture around us? Well, let me ask you a couple of questions. What rules your heart? What rules the hearts of those in our pagan, godless society? I mean, we could look at the kingdoms of power, politicians, uh, athletes, performers, people who are social media promoters. Power seems to rule their hearts. They want people to notice them. They want people to listen to them. They want to have a measure of control in our world. And it's all too easy for us, maybe not in places like Washington, D.C., to seek out power, but maybe we like to be in charge or have influence in the homes in which we live or in the uh, jobs in which we find ourselves. It's easy for a kingdom of power to become an idol in our lives. Not only that, but you have the kingdom of self. We live in a culture that is infatuated with self. Self-help, self-advancement, self-promotion, self-actualization, self-understanding, self-care, self-worth, self-esteem, self-glory. All of those permeate our society from selfies to Burger King where you can have it your way. And we're focused on what makes us feel happy, what makes us feel affirmed, what makes us feel accepted. And we focus all too often on ourselves. And the kingdom of self is a way in which the enemy tries to destroy us and, sh- and move us away from what God expects in our lives. By the way, these strategies of the enemy are not new. All the way back in the Garden of Eden, Satan tempted Adam and Eve with a desire to be like God. Power and self. It's exactly the way he tempted Nebuchadnezzar. We're going to read here in Daniel 2 and look at in Daniel 3. Notice in Daniel 3. It's exactly the way he tempts and strategizes to control the world in which we live. Power and self. These influential kingdoms attempt to shape and form our very souls. Through education, indoctrination, formation, the structures around us governed by our enemy, the devil, and his minions, they pursue us. 
Folks, they pursue our eyes with images, our hands with pleasures, our hearts with loves, and our lives with the promise of something better. The kingdoms of this world pursue us for their own ends and their own agendas. That's always been the strategy of our enemy. If Satan can't destroy us from without, he'll rot us from within. If he can't defeat us in the world of ideas that is our worldview, then he will attempt to defeat us in the world of our loves that is our worship. The aims of this world are to shape and form us in a way that's disconnected from the truths of Scripture. And what we discover in Daniel 2 is a contrasting picture for exactly what God wants us as Christ followers to see about our world and to put in practice in our lives. We're going to look at five principles from Daniel chapter 2, principles for Christ followers living the kingdom perspective in a, in a world that is full of depravity and full of wickedness and that pursues other kingdoms. So begin with me in verse 1. We'll read just a couple of verses and set the framework and foundation. We'll walk through these principles as we look at different verses in Daniel 2. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled. His sleep left him. And the king commanded that the magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came and stood before the king. And the king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. The Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, that's important, note that there in verse 4, O king, live forever, tell your servants the dream, we will show the interpretation. And then the king answered and said to the Chaldeans, the word from me is firm, if you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb and your houses be laid in ruins. Then he makes a promise for what would happen if they do interpret the dream. If you'll pick up in verse 10 or verse 9, if you don't make the dream known to me, there's but one sentence for you. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. Tell me the dream and I shall know that you can tell me its interpretation. Chaldeans answered the king and said, there's not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand. For no great powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. This thing is difficult. So in short, here's what happened. The king had dreams. He didn't remember his dreams. And so he brought his magicians and philosophers into the room and said, Tell me my dream and tell me its interpretation. If you can't tell me my dream and its interpretation, I'm going to kill you all. They said to him, Nobody can do it. There's not a person in the world that can tell you the interpretation of your dream, O king. They can't tell you what your dream was, and they can't interpret it. It's not not possible. And so the king was wanting something that was impossible to be done because he was so troubled by the dreams that he had. And then out of his fury, he announced that he was going to destroy everybody. He issued an edict that every one of the philosophers and magicians... Every one of the the thinkers in Babylon would be killed, including Daniel, Mishael, Hananiah, and Azariah. They were all going to be destroyed. So here's what Daniel did. Verse 16, Daniel went in and requested the king, give him a time, that he might show the interpretation of the king. So Daniel said, hold on a second, Uh, uh, give me a little bit of time, let me talk to God and see if we can find the answer to your conundrum, king. Verse 17, here's what Daniel did. He went to his house and he made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah his companions, and told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven, note that phrase, the God of heaven, concerning this mystery so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men in Babylon. And then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night, and Daniel blessed the God of heaven. So here's the purpose. The principle of kingdom purpose is this. 
And this is something that needs to permeate all the ways we think about our world, our culture, the kingdoms around us, how we live our lives. It's this, to reveal the God of the heavens as the God of the nations. This is an important principle that's going on in the text. Several things that point to this. Number one is this. There are two primary languages that the Bible was written in, Greek and Hebrew. Hebrew for the Old Testament, Greek for the New Testament. But in Daniel, beginning in chapter 2, verse 4, all the way through Daniel 7, those chapters of the Bible were not written in either Greek or Hebrew. They were written in Aramaic. They were written in Aramaic so that the people of Babylon would hear these stories, these interpretations, these events that took place. In other words, they were written in the language of the people that would have read it in their day. They were written essentially to be a universal expectation. Here's why. Because God doesn't just want us to know him as a God who is a tribal deity. He's not just the God of a group of Christians in Wilkesboro, North Carolina. He's not just the God of the people of Israel in the Old Testament or the God of the Christians living in Jerusalem in the New Testament. The Bible says that God is the God of the heavens. He is the one true God, and not only the God of the heavens, but the God of the heavens reveals himself in Daniel chapter 2 to be the God of the nations. In other words, he wants everyone to know that he is God and in charge. In fact, that's the primary reason that this vision came to Nebuchadnezzar, not to someone else. You might wonder, why would God give a dream and a vision to a pagan, godless, self-absorbed, prideful king? Because that's exactly who Nebuchadnezzar was. He wasn't godly. He didn't deserve to know what God's plans were for the world. Why did God reveal this to Nebuchadnezzar? Why didn't he reveal it to one of his choice servants, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, or Azariah? Why not Jeremiah? Why not Isaiah? Why not one of the other prophets? God did reveal some wonderful truths to the prophets of the Old Testament. But why didn't he reveal this vision to one of them? It's because God wanted the truths of this vision to be known by the world in that day. And if he told it to Nebuchadnezzar, if Nebuchadnezzar heard it, then it was sure to be expounded and proclaimed. Not only for Daniel and his friends, not only for the people of Israel who would read the book of Daniel later, it, was, it would be expounded for the people of Babylon. The people in the region would know it. The other magicians would know it. The, the, the leaders of the nations would know the dream. And why is it important that it's the God of the heavens who becomes or be, is declared as the God of nations. Well, uh, the Babylonian deities were, were a wicked bunch. They were a weird bunch. If you've read anything about the Epic of Gilgamesh or the Enuma Elish in, in your studies way back in the day in, in, in high school history or, or those kind of things, they're just a crazy bunch of gods. There were two powerful gods that created demigods or median-level gods that came down to earth. Those median-level gods didn't like the way that the greater gods kind of treated them. So one of those gods, Ai, killed one of those other gods. And then that created a war between the deities. Sounds a lot like Greek and, and Roman deities as well, right? I mean, there's a lot of anger and fighting and back and forth. And one of those gods that was appointed to essentially fight this war between the Babylonian deities was a god by the name of Marduk who is one that, that Nebuchadnezzar worshipped. He's known as the storm god. And Marduk won the victory over the main gods and basically established his deity among many other deities in Babylon. And so all of these Babylonian deities were worshipped for different reasons. They were worshipped in order to control the weather, control the storms. They were worshipped in order to be manipulated 
Because Nebuchadnezzar believed that if he got one God on his side, he'd be able to control this part of the world and all these kind of things. And what God is doing in revealing this dream to Nebuchadnezzar and speaking through Daniel is saying this, Nebuchadnezzar, I'm the God of the heavens, and the God of the heavens is also the God of the nations. In other words, there are no other Median deities. There are no other idols that are real. Marduk is not a real God, neither were any of your creation narratives and the deities of your past real. I am the one true God. And for us as Christians, here's what that means, and the reason this purpose is tremendously important. Folks, there is no other power on earth that is like our God. There's no other deity that's in charge. It may look like Islam is progressing. It may look like paganism is winning. It may look like unrighteousness is progressing. It may look like our enemy, the devil, is controlling the world. But he's not in charge. There is only one true God, and he is the God of the heavens. And the God of the heavens let Nebuchadnezzar have a vision and a dream that would show off his greatness and his glory and his power so that all would know that our God reigns. I hope that this message in particular provides an encouragement for us as Christians because our God is not one who lets things go, get out of kilter. He's in charge. That's why we're going to see what the vision is and we're going to be encouraged by the truths that we discover. So that's the principle of kingdom purpose. The God of the heavens, our God, is the God of the nations. He rules over everything. The second principle is this, the principle of kingdom prayer. We need to pray as if God is the only possible solution in impossible situations. So Daniel and his three friends were going to die. That was the edict. They were going to lose their lives for nothing they had done wrong. Like nobody else could give the king the answer. Daniel and his three friends were going to die. So what did they do? They got on Facebook and they started complaining against the unrighteous edict of Nebuchadnezzar. No, that's not what they did. They didn't even call a business meeting. That's what Baptists would do. We've got a problem, we're going to call a business meeting. We're going to put the wisest heads together and try to figure it out. That's not what they did. They didn't even call a family meeting to complain. What did they do? They gathered and they prayed. They went to the Lord. In the impossible situation, they went to God in prayer. And they asked God to intervene. And the prayer of blessing and thanksgiving is beautiful. After God gave the answer, here's what David said, or Daniel said, excuse me, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings, which is an affirmation of the interpretation of the dream, which he's going to share in a minute. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what's in the darkness, and the light dwells in him. To you, God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and might and have now made known to me what, was, what we asked of you, for you have made known to us the king's matter. In other words, Daniel and his friends prayed to God when the situation seemed impossible. Some of you have been there. Some of you have faced circumstances where there was no other solution. No one could fix it. No one could solve it. No one could intervene. And what did you do? You had to go to the Lord in prayer. You had to depend on God. You had to trust in him. Some of you are in their situations even now. Some of you know that there's a person that needs Jesus. And it, it would be might near impossible for that person to come to Christ. Some of you have wandering children and grandchildren. Some of you have health situations that are absolutely catastrophic. There's no answer to it. That's when we go to God in prayer. 
We go to God in prayer because God can change hearts. God can heal lives. God can tear down the brokenness and the wickedness and the depravity that's going on in someone's life and bring them to conversion and faith and change. God can even reveal himself to a wicked, pagan, godless king to show off his greatness and his glory in the world. We need to pray to God as if he's the only one that can fix impossible situations because he is. D. Duke puts it this way, almost everyone believes that prayer is important. But there's a difference between believing that prayer is important and believing that it is essential. Essential means there are things that will not happen without prayer. Some of you, some of us as followers of Christ, need to not turn our attention to social media, not turn our attention to books or or learning or education, though those things are helpful. Some of us, the best thing we can do is pray. We need to go to God in prayer. Corey Tin Boom puts it this way. She says, The wonderful thing about praying is that you leave a world of not being able to do something and enter God's realm where everything is possible. He specializes in the impossible. Nothing is too great for his almighty power. Nothing is too small for his love. Folks, Christ followers who are going to navigate a world of prevailing wickedness and unrighteousness have to be people who pray. That's what it's going to look like for us as Christians. And do you know why Daniel was able to thrive? And you realize this happened early in his time in Babylon, first three or four years of his time in Babylon, not past that anyway. He lived for decades later. You find out when he's in the lion's den in Daniel 6, and then when he's starting to have the visions from God in 7, 8, 9, and all the way through chapter 12, he's in his 80s at that point. How was he able to thrive in a wicked place? And by the way, we may think America is wicked, and it is, and it's ungodly, and it's unrighteous, and the prevailing unrighteousness are things that disturb us. We're going to talk about those things. How did Daniel thrive in a place that was far more wicked than we're living in? Do you know how he thrived? Because you find out in Daniel 6 that three times a day for the entirety of his life in Babylon, he got down on his knees and he prayed to the God of heaven. You want to make it through our world? Get down on your knees in prayer and talk to God who is able to intervene. That's the principle of kingdom prayer. The principle of kingdom perspective is number three, and it's this, only God has the answers. Look at verse 27, or verse 26 rather. So so Daniel came into the king, and the king declared to Daniel, his name was Belshazzar, are you able to make known to me the dream that I've seen in its interpretation? Hey, Daniel, can you tell me what I dreamed, and can you tell me its interpretation? Notice Daniel's response, verse 27. No wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. Daniel had an opportunity to walk into the king and get essentially anything he wanted because the king had already promised anybody who can give interpretation of the dream is going to be blessed, going to be promoted. Daniel could have walked in and said, yeah, I've got your interpretation, king. God showed it to me last night. Listen to me. I've got it. But that's not what he said. He said, nobody can. No wise man, no astrologer. No one can show you the dream. Look at verse 28. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. He has made known to you, King Nebuchadnezzar, what will be in the latter days, your dream and the visions of your head as you laid in bed. In other words, folks, there are some things around us that only God has the answers for. There's no hope anywhere else. There's no answer anywhere else. In the coming weeks, we're going to look at technology 
In the fears that we may have about what's going on with technology, we'll look at sexuality and the way the world identifies identity and sexuality. We're going to look at, at, at things uh, like how do we communicate a biblical worldview in a world that is full of pluralistic and various ideas. We're going to look at vanity and some other things that, that tend to control the way we uh, operate in our world. And, and we look at those things and we see those headlines and we're like, who has the answers? Where do they come from? How do we figure these things out? Folks, some of the things we're going to talk about and some of the things you're going to experience, only God has the answers for. There's no hope of us finding and discerning direction in the information we can find on the news stations that we follow and that we read. But God has the answers. Your friends and your family may not have answers, but God has the answers. And this is one of the most important things for us together, or for us to understand as Christians. We need the perspective that God alone is in control. That we go to Him and we seek Him. Too often we get ourselves in problems because we go over here and we go over there and we go to this person and we read this source. And what we do, we get all this information to try to make sense of what's going on in our world, our own lives, and we find ourselves stressed and frustrated because we're going to people who don't really have the answers. Folks, the perspective we need to have is go to God because only He has the answers. And why does He have the answers? Because He's the one that brings about His will in the world. That is principle number four, the principle of kingdom pursuit. And here it is, and then we'll read the text. Christ followers must be known for pursuing the King and His kingdom, His kingdom that will never go away. So Daniel stood before the king. God can give you the interpretation of your dream, O king. So in verse 31, Daniel said, Here's what you saw, king. You saw a great image. This image was mighty and of exceeding brightness. It stood before you. Its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked... A stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron and the clay and the bronze and the silver and the gold and all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a mountain and filled the whole earth. That's your dream. And this is the interpretation. Verse 37, You, O king... The king of kings to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the might, and the glory. By the way, that should really encourage us. If God is the one who put Nebuchadnezzar in charge, ultimately God is the responsible for any political leader being in place anywhere in the world. Our God is sovereign. He's the one who rules and reigns. Verse 38, Into whose hand he is given wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, the birds of heaven, uh, making you rule over them. You are the head of gold. Another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you, yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. Like iron that it crushes, it shall break and crush all these. As you saw the feet and toes partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom, but some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay and the toes... The feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with clay. 
And in the days of those kings, that's the iron and clay kingdom, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, that have broken pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. A great God is made known to the king, which shall be after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation is sure. It's a beautiful dream. Frightening, yes, for Nebuchadnezzar, beautiful for us. Here's why. Because exactly what Nebuchadnezzar dreamed took place. It's one of the glorious beauties of prophetic utterances in the Old Testament. Because what God says is what actually took place. For Nebuchadnezzar, the dream was in the future. For us as followers of Jesus, the dream is in the past. Meaning that these events already took place. So Nebuchadnezzar and the kingdom of Babylon was the, the head of gold. They lasted about 70 or 80 years. And the Medes and the Persians came along. That's the inferior kingdom, the silver kingdom next. They came, they came and destroyed the Babylonian kingdom. And Daniel actually lived through that transition. It's what you see later on in the book of Daniel. Then a kingdom, a third kingdom, the kingdom of bronze, arose. That would be the kingdom of Greece. And for those of you that remember your Western history, Alexander the Great spread the Greek kingdom over the known world, which is why the qualification there, that kingdom spread over the known world. Find out a lot more about Alexander the Great in the rest of the book of Daniel. In fact, it's speculated that Alexander the Great even knew some of these proclamations of Daniel and tried to abide by some of the prophetic utterances. In fact, I didn't say this in my other, other services, so they missed out. One of the important realities probably of the Magi who came to worship the king who would come probably came because of Daniel's utterances and prophetic words that were kept on record in Babylon. In other words, God spread the good news about his coming through the peoples of the world, even outside the people of Israel, because God wanted people to know that Jesus would, would arrive. So you had the kingdom of Greece, and then, of course, after Greece, you had the kingdom of Rome, the empire of Rome. And depending on which uh, date you date the empire of Rome beginning, if you date it at the beginning of the Republic till, the, till its end uh, at, at the, the Byzantine Empire in the 1400s, Rome in some form or fashion lasted 2,000 years. When it became a world empire was around to maybe 200 or so B.C. So in the days of Rome, do you know what happened? Rome was the empire that was in place, running the world, ruling over the world. When Caesar Augustus issued an edict and said all the world shall be taxed. And Mary and Joseph went to Bethlehem to be taxed. And Jesus lived, ministered and died on a cross during the time of the Roman Empire. In fact, that's exactly what God let Nebuchadnezzar see. He let Nebuchadnezzar see a stone that was cut out by no human hand, indicating that the kingdom that was to come in the days of the Roman Empire, that kingdom was going to be a kingdom that's not of this earth, which is exactly what Jesus said to Pilate, my kingdom is not from this world, it's from another place, it's from heaven. And the stone is an image that the Bible used to describe Jesus. He's the cornerstone upon whom people don't follow Jesus, they'll be crushed. That's the imagery. And that stone is going to crush all the kingdoms of the world, destroy all the kingdoms of the world. In the text it says, they'll be like chaff and they'll be blown away. We may say that, hold on a second, that's not happened. 
Jesus didn't set up a kingdom that destroyed the kingdoms of the world. And no, he hasn't, not in that sense, not yet, not today. George Ladd, in his wonderful little book, The Gospel of the Kingdom, describes what's going on with the kingdom of God today. He writes it this way. He said, the world will yet behold the coming of God's kingdom with power. That's going to happen in the future. But the mystery, the new revelation, is that this very kingdom of God has now come to work among men. But in an utterly unexpected way. It is not now destroying human rule. It is now abolishing sin from the earth. It is not now bringing the baptism of fire that John announced. It has come quietly, unobtrusively, secretly. It can work among men and never be recognized by the crowds. In the spiritual realm, the kingdom now offers to men the blessings of God's rule, delivering them from the power of Satan and sin. The kingdom of God is an offer, a gift which may be accepted or rejected. The kingdom is now here with persuasion rather than with power. In other words, the kingdom of God is present in our world and it's present through the inauguration of what Jesus did. We read it. At the outset of our worship service today, Jesus came and his first sermon was repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. His sermon on the mount is all about the kingdom of God. When Jesus died on the cross, rose from the dead and stood there announcing his commission to his followers, he said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. So what is the kingdom of God doing in our world today? It's not overthrowing kingdoms as we might think politically. The kingdom of God today is ruling and reigning in the hearts and lives of Christ followers all throughout our world. I'm going to tell you something. The kingdom of God is being victorious all throughout. All throughout the kingdoms of the world. In the United States, the kingdom of God is fully operating when Christ followers gather to worship God and let Jesus reign in their lives through their behavior and their thought process. The kingdom of God is at work in China, is at work in the Middle East, is at work among Islam, Islamic individuals who are seeing visions of Jesus and coming to faith in Christ. The kingdom of God is at work in our world, redeeming us from the, sin, from the enemy, Satan, bringing us out from darkness and sin and unrighteousness and changing our hearts and lives. So what did Jesus say? Jesus said this about the kingdom, that our obligation as Christ followers is to seek first the kingdom of God, Matthew 6, 33. It's not to seek our own glory. It's not to seek our own security. It's not to seek our own peace or prosperity. Our obligation is to seek the kingdom of God. And we do that both cognitively and formatively. We do that in the way we think. Folks, one of the reasons we're looking at this series Worship and worldview is one of the ways that you and I seek the kingdom of God is by letting God's word shape our lives and shape what we think about our world rather than Facebook or Instagram or Twitter or Fox News or CNN or The Blaze or MSNBC. Instead of letting those organizations shape what we think, we need to let God's word shape how we think. Being framed in our worldview is a cognitive change for what God's doing in our lives so that we can seek first the kingdom of God. But not only that, we need to be shaped formatively. In other words, seeking first the kingdom of God matters in the way that we worship. One of the reasons so many Christ followers have so little spiritual power is because they're so disconnected from the habits and practices of Christian living. How in the world can we seek first the kingdom of God if we're never around God's people worshiping? How can we seek first the kingdom of God if we never read the Bible? How can we seek first the kingdom of God if we're not spending our time in prayer? 
I go back to the illustration of Daniel. How was he able to thrive in a pagan society? He prayed every day. Sounds really simple, right? It's not tremendously complicated. He bowed his knee before the King of Kings, the God of the heavens, and surrendered to God. Folks, you want to thrive as a Christ follower in a pagan, wicked, unrighteous society. Seek first the kingdom of God. So our obligation, our primary allegiance has got to be to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Our primary allegiance cannot be the rescue of our country. It cannot be our own financial security. It cannot be our jobs or our situations. It must be to Jesus Christ and Jesus alone. Seeking first the kingdom of God means that we must deepen our understanding of what we believe and why. That's shaping our worldview. And it must mean that we deepen our practice of Christian living that is worship. This is none other than seeking first the kingdom of God. Fifth principle, the principle of kingdom proclamation. Christ followers are responsible to proclaim the truths of the kingdom to all who will hear. It's exactly what Daniel did to Nebuchadnezzar. King, this is what you're going to see. This is what you did see in your dream and vision. This is what's going to happen. There's going to come a kingdom, and you're responsible to this kingdom. It's exactly what Daniel did. He invited and asked for, for blessings for his friends. Read the rest of the chapter. He, he's letting us know, he's letting those that would hear know, that we're responsible to the kingdom as it comes. George Ladd put it this way. He said, the kingdom of God does not function in a vacuum, but is entrusted to men and works through redeemed men who have given themselves to the rule of God through Christ. Our job as Christians is to talk about the good news of the kingdom. That's why Jesus preached the good news of the kingdom. Why is it good news? It's good news because Jesus reigns. It's good news because all authority has been given to Jesus in heaven and on earth. You know what that means? That means that heart disease doesn't win. It means cancer doesn't win. It means political parties don't win. It means nations don't win. It means Vladimir Putin won't win. Just like Adolf Hitler didn't win. Just like any political leader that's lived on planet earth, they don't ultimately reside in victory. Jesus wins. The good news of the kingdom is that there's hope, there's forgiveness, there's peace, and there's ultimate eternal security in the future. How can we know that? Watch this. The reason we know that Jesus is going to come back and all the kingdoms of the earth will be shattered according to the promise in the book of Revelation, the kingdom of this world will become the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. The reason we know that will happen in the future is because what Daniel prophesied about in the past already took place. Babylon lost, the Medes and the Persians lost, the Greeks lost, and the Romans lost. And the kingdom of our God came during the time of the Romans. He came and he rules and Jesus has inaugurated his kingdom, meaning that there's coming a day when all the kingdoms of the world will fall. And the only people that will reign will be those who are reigning with Christ underneath his kingdom. That's why we proclaim the good news of the kingdom. And by the way, that demands a decision. Kings have subjects. Okay? We're not the counselors to God. We're the subjects of our God and King. He's not waiting on us to tell him what to do. He's in charge. The kingdom of God demands, requires a response. Submission him. C.S. Lewis put it this way. He said, if you have not chosen the kingdom of God, it will make in the end 
no difference what you've chosen instead. He says those are hard words to take. Will it really make no difference whether it was women or patriotism, cocaine or art, whiskey or a seat at the cabinet, money or science? Well, surely no difference matters. We shall have missed the end for which we are formed and rejected the only thing that satisfies. Then he asked this question. Does it matter to a man dying in a desert by which choice of route he missed the only well? Folks, there are people in our world and in our society that are seeking power, privilege, position, pleasure. They're hoping for some measure of peace through all sort of mechanisms. There are people in our congregation today. Your, your pursuit is something for yourself, not for God. The kingdom of God demands a decision. You're going to follow Christ or you're going to follow yourself. Here's why it's so important that we follow Christ. Because there's not peace any other place other than Jesus. This story was told to Nebuchadnezzar, the interpretation of the dream. You know what Nebuchadnezzar's response was? Read chapter 3. He built an image like he saw in chapter 2 and said, worship me. Nebuchadnezzar's story missed the point. His leadership was pathetic, his pride was wicked and ungodly, and he lost everything because he turned his attention back to himself. Folks, the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ is this. You and I can have peace, forgiveness, hope, security now, eternal security forever, but we've got to submit to the king. What does submitting to the king look like? Simply, it means doing what the king says. When Jesus writes it in his word, those are our marching orders. Those are our commands. That's what we're obligated to do. Let me tie it up this way. Some of you today are here facing something that you see that seems impossible to you. Someone's heart needs to be changed. Someone's life needs to be redeemed. You're facing a diagnosis or a circumstance that you don't have the answers for. I'm going to tell you something, Christian. What we need to do is pray. We need to pray to the King of kings and Lord of lords, the only one who has answers. And one of the best ways we submit to him and surrender to his authority is by acknowledging that he has the answers and coming to him in prayer. Some of us, maybe some of you in the room, you're pursuing anything but God. You're trying to find answers somewhere else, trying to find peace somewhere else. The kingdom of God demands a decision. Will you follow Christ or will you follow yourself? Will you follow what you want, or will you follow what Christ Jesus offers? I'm going to ask you to stand with me, if you will. If you're here today and you need to trust Jesus as your Lord and Savior, if you have been trying and seeking peace or trying to find answers somewhere else, I would beg of you, let today be the day where you turn from those pursuits and follow Jesus and submit to the King. Christian, if you're here and you've got a situation you need to pray about, I would invite you to this altar today to bring it before the Lord. Our Father, we pray in these moments that you work in our hearts and lives. I am so encouraged by this story, by this image, that uh, this vision that Nebuchadnezzar had and the interpretation of it where Jesus wins and reigns. And Lord, we're part of that kingdom today. Thank heavens we are. That no matter what happens today, tomorrow, next week, next year, we know you're in charge. We're going to follow King Jesus. 
Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters in the room who are facing some of them significantly difficult situations. May they find you and seek you, seek answers, calling upon your name in prayer. And Lord, for the one or several in the room and certainly the ones that are on our prayer list that have not submitted to King Jesus, I pray for their souls, I pray for their hearts, I pray for life change to take place. Pray that they would meet you in your glory, they would surrender to you, they would become followers of you and receive the life and the peace and the security that only you offer. Pray this in Christ's name. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Remember to like and subscribe wherever podcasts are found.